Just stop it. The run-of-the-mill, cheesy, humdrum bullshit status quo just tires me out. What fascinates me are the industry disruptors, the superhuman frontiersmen or women who go through hell to achieve their goals. Join me as we meet and learn from those mavericks, rebels, and business leaders that aren't afraid to piss off the establishment in order to make radical change for good. Sponsored by Johto PR, the disruptive anti-PR firm that murders your competition with cinder blocks and cyanide. This is Disruption Interruption. Welcome back, everybody, to Disruption Interruption. I'm your host, KJ, and we're here today to talk to another industry leader that has steered the reins off the lame, tired path of the status quo. Today's guest has been disrupting for over two decades as a neuroscientist. He's disrupting data solutions by supporting groundbreaking research in neuroscience and machine learning. We're going to find out what that's all about. His company's mission is to help research teams solve the most complex problems and bring clarity to big data and computations. Coming to us live from my hometown, Houston, Texas, please welcome the talented and brilliant Dmitry Yasenko, CEO of DataJoint. Yay! <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me, and I'm happy to discuss neuroscience and technology as it transforms. Yes. So you didn't know you were in my hometown, did you? No, I didn't. Yes, you're in my hometown. So you are representing very well, Dimitri. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'm happy to be here <laughs> in Houston, Texas, USA. That's right. So before we get into this, because I know our audience is very interested in neuroscience. I mean, we don't hear enough about it, but it is, it's a disruptive industry in itself, right? But tell me, what is your number one main ingredient for disruptive innovation? Yes. And in, in neuroscience, of course, grows incrementally as all science. We build it on the shoulders of giants. And as neuroscience is moving toward a much bigger data, much more complex experiments, the main thing that it needs is a more of a systematic approach, principle framework for research teams to coordinate their efforts on data-driven computational projects. So that systematic principle approach is what we bring to the picture. Yeah, very systematic. Is that considered unusual for a scientist in itself, or is that part of the framework and built-in like tradition of being a scientist? Well, well, scientists are working with scientists in a collaboration. It's like herding cats. Everybody's trying to be a maverick, and that's great. Everybody's trying to do things differently, and in neuroscience in particular, because the, the, we don't yet know how to study the brain to its full, to the full capacity that it, it offers, that it possesses. Experiments are becoming much more complex, and it requires teams to work together for the first time. There's a, a lot of Historically, researchers have been a little bit more isolated. They work in lab focusing, and now they're forced into, by just the complexity of the system that we're studying, into a much more collaborative, data-driven style of work. And that pushes them out of their comfort zone, and they're still used to working in a very haphazard, more cottage industry type of everybody's doing their different, different approach. So figuring out how to put it all together, how to put multi-lab, multi-institutional collaborations together is a difficult challenge. Yeah, I was going to say it is a challenge. I mean, you just identified, I guess, a persona or the character of the neuroscientists and the scientists, right? They're in their ivory tower. They see something that other people don't see. They're out to figure it out and prove it. And now they're being forced into collaborating 
because of these complex experiments. So for our listeners, can you back up a little bit and tell me about some of these complex experiments that's happening in neuroscience? Yeah, I'll describe the roughly, and, and of course, this is a very rich, a big history. Roughly, some of the trends, say a few years ago, let's say in the 20th century, if you did electrophysiology, it was more about recording from a single cell at a time with an electrode. Then we moved to tetros that allow recording from a few neurons at a time. And now neuroscience in general has invested a lot into developing these neurotechnologies for recording massive amounts of data at the same time. So for example, the brain initiative, the White House brain initiative that was started in 2013 has focused on investing very heavily into recording technologies. And so now we have, and that's not the only initiative, many governments and funding agencies have focused on that. And so now we have technologies, array electrophysiology probes, for example, such as NeuroPixels is one that are, allows recording from hundreds of cells at the same time. And if you use several from thousands of cells at the same time, and, and not only individual modalities, now we're doing experiments where several types of recordings are combined in one experiment. So we can have functional imaging, electrophysiology, trans transcriptomics, complex behaviors, all in one experiment. So as before, usually, of course, these recordings are done in typically in animals and model animals, such as mice. Mice are heroic animals for us that help us uh, <laughs> resolve, solve a lot of mysteries. So they would be done in, in anesthetized mouse that would be presented stimuli, and this is all very passive. So now experiments are moving to naturalistic behaviors, where mice are performing complex tasks that are maybe something like hunting, they hunt crickets or collecting something or just basically interacting with other mice. And now all of these data have to be molecular data, genetic, then electrophysiology recordings, stimuli all have to be combined together. And that requires, no one neuroscientist can do it. It requires a systematic approach with collecting data, but also modeling, uh, so more a theoretical approach. This, now as a neuroscientist, you cannot, you will not get very far by proposing studies where you are by yourself recording from a single mouse. <laughs> right. Yeah, it requires these very multimodal, usually very collaborative projects. So you have this multiple stimuli, massive data that you're having to collect, right? Organize, right? Yeah. And you mentioned something, and I might be paraphrasing, like hypothetical postulates about this, like computation, so forth, right? You're trying to figure out, what are you trying to figure out? Yes. Yeah, so very often people, scientists focus more on, on treating disease. Fundamentally, a lot of neuroscientists, myself included, are more driven by figuring out how the brain just works, just baseline, how it, what are the algorithms, what are the fundamental principles of neural circuits that make it so adaptive. So the brain is complex and at the same time, it has some patterns to it. And neocortex, the, the outer portion of the mammalian brain is very flexible. You can make the same circuits in that look very similar in different parts of the, of the neocortex solve very different problems. Some are in perception, some are in planning, but fundamentally they look the same. So there must be some principles. So understanding those principles, it, it's just pure curiosity, but in terms of application, we can bring machine learning closer to how the brain works. So right now we call in machine learning, we call these algorithms in machine learning, we call them neural networks, but they have very little to do with how real neural networks. There are some similarities, but they're how the brain computes and how artificial neural network computes right now, at this point is very different. And so we, uh, by understanding how the brain works, we can improve these technologies. 
But for many neuroscientists, fundamentally, they're just curious to figure out how we work, how our brains, how it is that that the genetic programs that build the circuits and the interaction with the environment together produce intelligence. It's just, it just seems like the most fundamental problem, the most difficult problem and the most fundamental problem. Yeah. And it seems it's very interesting that you have this industry that is there to find out why and how it works, right? Do neuroscientists and other scientists, the data scientists that you work with, I mean, are they mostly curious about how it works or do they have visions for application and they're going in that particular direction? Uh, well, visions, it's different for different people. And I think i think more idealistic, more curiosity driven, perhaps focus more on just figuring this out. Of course, we also are practical in a lot of the things we can learn first help us if we understand how the baseline functionality of the brain, then we can better understand its deviations with in brain disease and in mental illness. But so the clinical approach or the clinical applications of this in mice, we can reproduce a lot of the same ailments of the brain as hmm. in humans, sometimes with the same genes and sometimes with the exact with very similar symptoms. So the clinical side. From trying to mimic brain function in silico, in, in computing, that's where a lot of current investment is moving toward. Another application is better integration between technology and biology. So basically better interfaces. So brain machine interfaces is a big research area. That's where a lot of more sci-fi type of applications where you can put yeah. chips in the brain and interact more. That's again, for, for us, where we focused, we was more to accelerate basic science. So more focused on a fundamental understanding of how molecules, genes, and stimuli, how they interact to, to shape circuits to more on the circuit and systems level, how they shape the activity of the circuit to make it turn it into adaptive behavior. Got it. And you said this particular area is where a lot of investment funds are moving into. Is that right? Uh, so there is investment on the commercial side. So more of uh, companies or private investment that goes both into fundamental research, but also into applications where the more of funding agencies, government funding agencies, the NIH, uh, NSF and DARPA and others, they invest in applications and also clean more, a lot more on the clinical side, but also into fundamental research, just figuring out the principles of building circuits and neural activity. Right. So we have this proliferation of research going on in this particular industry. And you said there's just tons of data sets, right? And you said typically they've worked alone. Now it's forced this collaboration. But what has that done with the data that you have to bring such scientific rigor and clarity to being able to understand, organize the big data and the computations? Like what's been the challenge and the status quo of that? Well, so this is the intersection between science, technology, and social aspects of how science works. So as the data have become more complex and researchers have to adopt to it, the way they adopt to it is they, they just have to spend more time doing data software engineering, data systems engineering, and that typically falls on the shoulders of postdocs, graduate students, who now, as they work toward their PhDs, increasingly they spend more and more of their time and effort and knowledge on these engineering tasks, and that don't necessarily contribute to 
advancing their scientific career or they prepare them for solving these types of problems, but they don't, they're not part of, they're not at the cutting edge of, of what they are contributing in terms of scientific findings. They're not really doing what they went. Uh, that's right. For so, so, years, so right? We, have, we have this phenomenon. People are fascinated by neuroscience, so they're willing to go and spend six, eight, ten years getting a PhD. But it's taken longer and longer, so that time to get it, the PhD gets has been growing. So now I think it's on the order of I, I don't know the exact statistics, but it's well over six years. And so the runway has increased, and is it because of this? They're handling these engineering hats rather than their the, actual the, science hat. Each neuroscience lab is is equivalent to data-driven enterprise in the industry. This would be a company with a team, but here basically graduate students with just their passion and expertise and passion in their just drive. They put together these solutions, they work, they, they perform this heroic task, but usually these things fall apart as soon as they leave the lab and move on. And so there's not, a, and they're proud to produce these solutions. It's just you know, over time, you know, without a systematic approach across the field, there's little continuity. There's a lot of inefficiency in that they produce they reproduce the same problem or they reproduce the same solutions across many labs. There is not over and over from over scratch. Yeah, that from often, very often from scratch. And, and then once they graduate, they don't go get professor position. They usually go and do postdoc. So a postdoc is another period of training that sometimes you have to do two postdocs before you can land a job as a as an independent investigator. And that can take sometimes another five, six, seven, and sometimes 10 years. And so now from the time you graduate from with your bachelor's degree to the time you can get a professorship position in neuroscience, it often takes well over 10 years. And wow. this, this is where you're considered that you are in training. But what actually happens is that you're working alongside with other researchers, sol contributing, solving, working on these problems, contributing to the principal research of your lab. And a lot of, at this point is the data. So the, the, a decade ago, two decades ago, the main problem was how to collect the data, but now we're collecting so much data, increasingly the bigger problem is what to do with it, how to handle it, and we how much time we're spending analyzing it, figuring out just the data engineering, just the moving, the transforming of the data sometimes takes half of the time that the researcher spends on the project. So it's an wow. efficiency, and people don't see it because it's all, there's so much enthusiasm that students are willing to do this and they're very and they spend this time of their career doing these performing these acts of heroic effort. Where does the frustration come in? I mean, there's this tsunami of data, right? And you and they're each in separate silos, creating their own systems and yep. gathering data, like almost recreating the wheel each time, right? Yep. Where's the frustration come in? Is there lost data? Obviously, is there? Yeah. So lack of continuity is one. So that's basically where in, in the difference in difference between many labs and institutions. But when a postdoc works on a project and after they leave, nobody can pick up what they started. And just in many cases, it's the case that when a grad student finishes their work, it cannot just continue into the next student's <laughs> project. They have to re rebuild things. So that having a more of a systematic framework for what's different in science from commercial approaches is that continuous fluidity. So we need to accommodate it. People always want to tweak and modify things, make them. So it seems like it would be incompatible with continuity. If you make things very adjustable and flexible and open, then it seems difficult to make it also last. <laughs> right. But if you define some principles, you, you can. And this is what that, how we're aiming to change the field. So tell me what you're doing there at DataJoint. So 
I, I have it on a high level, but tell me how you started this, what you've been doing, how it's been helping, what have been your challenges? Yeah. Um, Start. <laughs> it, it from our research at Baylor College of Medicine, my lab mates and I together launched the company first to respond to a SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Solicitation from DARPA. And so we, we started the company and we started, it started from the, from the developments that I began at Baylor College of Medicine during my grad graduate school years. So I went to grad school later. I had an ongoing career in software engineering, in engineering, systems engineering, medical imaging. And then I decided I already participated in a lot of research. So I decided to go back and get a PhD in neuroscience. And as part of this, I developed what was what I called then data joint. It wasn't the company, it was the data framework for combining the principal innovation there is to work with data and computation in one unified framework. And this is something that from the scientific computer science principles, this is something that right now is not solved very well. We have great theoretical foundations for representing data, things like the relational data model, this gets technical a bit, but not in a unified way to with how computation fits into that. So this is what the data joint framework solved, combining data and all the computational transformations across different stages of it. And so this, we made this an open source project and spread throughout their labs. And so by the time we launched the company in 2017, we had a somewhat of a user base and we, this was a time when a lot of research was funding went into collaborative multi-institutional projects. And a lot of researchers turned to us for our expertise in organize, organizing a computational data pipeline that spans multiple labs. Not many people knew how to do that at the time. And so we picked up a few of these projects as customers. And so it went from there. And so I love so. that. I love how you explain it. So it's like this pipeline, a connection of data to these different mm -hmm. labs. Was this done in tandem with, you said the Baylor College of Medicine, or was it under the auspice of that? I mean, what was the relationship there? So it started from the lab. I started, started in the lab, we developed these tools. When we founded the company, it was just, it was the four of us, four of my lab mates, including the principal investigator of the lab, Andres Tolias. And then they continued with their research as we, so I split my time between the lab and one of the other co-founders also split his time between the lab and the company as we launched. And then as we build it up, we, I switched to full-time just in 2020 and was splitting my time. But it, the company is not formally affiliated with Baylor College of Medicine. It's fully, fully independent and privately owned. Got it. So you have these labs that are now a, a part of this data pipeline that you've been able to connect, right? Yeah. What have been the challenges for that? And then how is this pipeline helping? Can like get all this data together, make the computation, like tell me, like, and what do you see the future like? Yeah. Great so, questions, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of questions. So a lot of challenges. So challenges are pretty much, they're very well defined by the nature of science. People try to do something different. Every, every team is trying to do something different. This is how you innovate. And that includes their approaches for data analysis. And a major, a major challenge is a lack of standardization or trying to figure out how to do things the same way. So we've been, we've been adopting to, to that rather than trying to fight that, we adopt it. Rather than prescribing a standard way of doing something, we accommodate automated automating and adapting quickly to, to a variety so of approaches. So defining a, a more versatile framework that can quickly adapt to different approaches. And so this is what, when we work with researchers, we say, yes, 
Invent as many methods as you like. Let's try to organize them in such a way where we can automate that, make it cloud compatible, containerized, web, web accessible, so that it can be quickly deployed in, across multi-lab collaboration. So a lot of it is bridging that both social and technical gaps, because if researchers are developing something just for themselves, it's often not very amenable to deploying on the scale of a multi-lab collaboration. And multi-lab collaboration has a much higher chance of whatever, going into fruition, being funded, using in applications and so forth. So it has a real world experience on this. This is the only way we can solve the brain is this, but when we, we, you have to bring the molecular people, the computational people, electrophysiology people into the same into solving the same problem. All these mavericks together. Yes. You really are hurting cats. That's right. No one person can do all of those things or even one lab. So a lot of projects are increasingly very multi-lab. With this multi-lab approach and this ability to really bring clarity to big data, has there been groundbreaking research that has happened or is it on the horizon? Well, so it's an emergent type of phenomenon as you study so what we're able to study now is more of how circuits, means populations of neurons, work together while to to uh, yeah. So I can provide a few examples. But, yeah, please. Uh, right. So how how on the population level um, circuits respond and, and aggregate the data. One of the big projects from which where data joint was used in at Baylor College of Medicine was called Microns, Machine Intelligence from Cortical Networks. So Machine Intelligence from Cortical Networks, this Microns project, it, it, it combines the anatomy of the circuit where with the function of the circuit in the live animal in, during perception of vision, of visual information. So in this experiment, a full cubic millimeter of tissue in one mouse was first fully imaged with calcium imaging, which allows you to measure the activity of neurons while the animal is behaving, awaking and responding to stimuli. In this, then the same volume. So every cell was characterized in terms of its responses to the stimuli. And then this volume was imaged with electron microscopy with 40 nanometer resolution to allow to see all the connections, physical connections. So relating that physical architecture uh, of the circuit to the functional to the function of neurons, and then we can what how that's used is then we can train machine machine learning algorithms to reproduce the same type of activity, and with the same with similar connectivity patterns, and to bring closer bridge that gap between machine learning in silico and computers and and the function of circuits in, in the living brain. So this is some of the and that is the ultimate goal, right? Uh, the, yeah, well, it's it, the it's prime ultimate yeah. goal. It's trying to reproduce the function of the brain in circuits a little bit closer. So we see this tremendous progress in machine learning so over the past decade, in particular, uh, where machine learning al- uh, algorithms are in many ways are performing better than humans in some visual tasks in recognizing, classifying. And so this is where we can bring some of the principles from the brain into computer science. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And there has been a lot more attention on that just with different influencers in this particular space, or maybe <laughs> not even in this space, I won't even mention. But how did you get into neuroscience? I mean, I know you said you were an engineer before, right? Yeah. But when was that epiphany or what, like, you've always been curious by nature, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me that. And also tell me, when was the pivotal point where you said, that's it, I've got to do something about all these disparate data sets? 
I don't know if this, there has been a pivotal point. It has been an incremental process. So I have always been in, in computing. So my first degrees were all in computing, computer science, engineering, things like signal analysis, imaging. I worked in the medical device industry, navigation, surgical or imaging as well. I worked for a company called Ripple Neuro, where we built some neurology-related devices and participated in the research there. And that's where my engineering, my medical device engineering experiment experience overlapped with, with neuroscience, and that, that prompted me to go into basic science after that. But but I don't mean, you know, even much earlier, I in back in college in my undergrad, I took a biology course and we did the human dissection and just holding a human brain in my hand. It was just amazing that uh, that all the all that comprises us, all our experiences, all our feelings, all our knowledge is really contained in this in this small volume, and somehow it all works. <laughs> so that's and you're hooked from that day forward. <laughs> it definitely expanded just my sense of wonder, and so I, I did a lot of I studied more physics and a little bit more on, for example, figuring out how better ways of recording from the brain. So that involves a little bit more physics and computation than physiology and anatomy. It, focuses a bit more on the computational side of things, but in up with applications to neuroscience. Yes. Wow. Well, where do you see, you obviously have projections or predictions on the industry and where things are going with neuroscience and being able to connect the data for these labs. I now understand the name of your company. <laughs> data <laughs> Joint. <laughs> it's really good. Um, where do you see this changing things for our ability to really understand how the brain works and help us, you know, in the next five, 10, 15 years? Yeah. So I think we're still quite hampered by, or a lot of teams are hampered by their lack of, or the just the difficulty connecting what they want to do logically computational, computationally with the infrastructure and organization that's required to do it. It's a lot of IT departments and they're not quite it's difficult for them to adapt to this and to accommodate. So there's a gap between, in, in between just communications between the logic of computation, the logic of a data organization that required for a neuroscience study, and then the IT computational infrastructure. And so there's that struggle and there is a lot of overhead right now in research. And so that's what we're overcoming. And I think, so by providing a framework that first allows you to separate those concerns effectively and address them separately in a flexible way, that's what will ultimately address it. So you can formulate the problem and communicate it to the people who can execute it computationally on those skills is something that we are bringing and I think it's lacking in a lot of, in a lot of settings. So what we're seeing a lot is for many projects as they propose their research, just sometimes when you write a grant, you have to, in your budget, you have to specify the overhead, things that are not directly related to the research activities. And those things have also been growing if you look at many institutions in large fractions, sometimes between 40 and 150% of the- It depends on how, on different groups. And universities are not always used to working with a commercial company that helps. So they're much more, and this is one of the, one of the problems we're helping overcome is that if a company who does this professionally, systematically can deliver it efficiently, then working with a university rather than building their own on-premise infrastructure that incurs a lot of overhead just because how it's you to a more centralized cloud-based approach where things can be solved more efficiently, but they may not be used to that 
type of funding structure. And so that's something that we're overcoming, I think, in the future. Uh, that extra flexibility and efficiency can, can accelerate research and make it more efficient. Do you so, think there will be more demand from neuroscientists and data scientists and you know, all the other stakeholders to have that level of efficiency rather than the on-prem sites systems so that you can get more research done? Because it seems like if the cost is so exorbitant and exponentially increasing, when are we going to get down to the brass tacks of how we're going to use this to better mankind, right? Yeah. And this problem we've been talking about neuroscience, this is not specific to neuroscience and it has been solved. Neuroscience is perhaps a late Uh, Yeah, a late bloomer compared to other fields, for example, astronomy, particle physics, genomics. So these, these, all of these industries have gone through this transformation much earlier. Perhaps their data, they may disagree with this, but is much simpler compared to neuroscience, but also these large scale. So they've arrived at this more first standardization, common frameworks, and also involvement of of commercial companies that can help execute things more effectively and provide computation as a service rather than having each lab reproduce the same computation with graduate students. But at the same time, it's an unsolved problem more generally than neuroscience. So definitely we plan to expand into other fields as well. But in neuroscience, this need is the most acute because of the recent uh, just exponential growth of neurotechnologies for acquisition and data acquisition, complexity of the data multimodal experiments, collaborative projects. So all of these very quickly, in the, I would say over the past 10 years, have really become, made the problem a lot more acute in neuroscience. But these are general problems. Yes, but not so general for the neuroscientists, right? Yeah. <laughs> in that field. Do you think it's become these other aspects of science or sectors of science And you said, gosh forbid, if we say it's not so complex, right? But they have made something that was complex and streamlined it and put their standards. Was that because there were more applications being brought to market that this science could actually contribute to? And now we're into neuroscience, right? Which is moving in that particular direction. And so this innovation is part and parcel of the puzzle to get there. That's right. So I think they had maybe more time. So they maybe their technologies, say, if you take astronomy, they did, the amount of data grew gradually and or in particle physics, you know, grew more gradually. And then it was driven by a lot of these mega projects that invested heavily into specifying frameworks, defining frameworks, providing computational solutions. In neuroscience, uh, because of the much greater diversity of experiments, it's been less amenable to standardization, everybody, but at the same time, the technological growth has been has had a very rapid onset with the, the Obama Brain Initiative 2013, the Brain Initiative that's still ongoing. They basically, the premise was, and it sounds good to the public, is that if we only can record from every neuron in the brain, if we can only record from hundreds or thousands of cells at the same time, well, in uh, all the neurons in a simpler brain, same as zebrafish or something, it's a zebrafish embryo. If we can only record from every neuron in the brain, we would be able to fi- figure out the principles of operations. That sounds great before you start, but once you now we're collecting this data, so what do you do with it? How do you analyze it? So, 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 so now that that some of those promises came to fruition, well, at the time it was easy to say, oh, if we will be able to figure this out. But now, so we've solved the problem. We are solving the problem of collecting massive amounts of data. We just don't know how to analyze it, how to fit it. How do we analyze it? What are we doing? Even if I knew the timing of every spike in the brain of a fully behaving mouse or a human, 
I would still not necessarily be able to make sense out of it or learning in new principles. There, we need frameworks, we need uh, effective data tools, and that's next. So that wasn't maybe, people knew about this at the time when the most proposals were made. They knew that would be coming, but they thought, okay, let's get there first. Let's collect the data first. And now, so now we're collecting these data. How do we solve the problem of the brain that still remains? Right. And that's your job. You know, it's one thing to know about something. It's one thing to then know it. <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Dimitri, how, what do you do outside of what, do you have any crazy passions outside of this? I've been hang gliding for 20 years. Really? So yeah, I, and I lived in Utah uh, where, uh, with beautiful mountains and that, so that's something. So that brings me closer to the elements. And here in Texas, it's a little bit different air towing. So there's a go to an airfield, they tow you to 3,000 feet, you release, and then you catch thermals and fly to clouds and hop uh, around. How did yeah. you get into hand gliding? So I started in Utah. Just one day I decided I would start doing it. You start on a bunny hill, take off the first run with a hang glider gently picking you off. And then you get higher and higher on the slope. So that's how you learn there. Here you would learn differently with in tandem. But you yeah. learned in Utah. And like, how high do you go now? Uh, Utah. Yeah, been here uh, on typical flight, you would go to four or 5,000 feet. On these epic flights, you can get to 16. You're not supposed to get above 18, above about 18,000 feet in the hang glider. But yeah, you need to bring supplemental oxygen and all of those things. So you get up. Uh, so have you gotten up to 16,000 or what? Or? Yeah, in, U, in Utah, I have. And then also in Europe, over the Alps, we got to. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. So, so yes, it's beautiful. Pretty cold up there. Yes. So even when it's even when it's 100 degrees on the ground, well, it, so I remember in, uh, it was 30 degrees Celsius on the ground. Then you've launched at the launch point, which is a ski resort on the top. It's a little cooler. And then once you get to 16,000 feet, I was wearing my ski gloves and everything was still cold. Wow. Do you have a most memorable hand gliding experience that you can tell us about? Uh, just one beautiful flight from... Switzerland to Italy, fish Switzerland, <laughs> and when you see all the uh, all the glaciers below you, I yeah, I still that was a long time ago. I still I still every once in a while it still comes up in my in my dreams. That sounds gorgeous. How do you land? Oh yeah, you need to very always, carefully be aware of where you can land. So you always within the forty five degree cone, you always need to know below yourself. You always need to have a spot where you think if you're going cross country, usually you land where you take off. And you learn how to do the standard approach, downwind, base final, target where you land. It's kind of like- You uh, actually land field. where you take off? Uh, yeah, usually the same airfield, the same spot, yeah. That's fascinating. And, that's where your car is, that's where- it, you know, that's a, Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. it. So but you're the first thing. person I've heard that did hand gliding. That's yeah, awesome. it's, it's a great sport. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I never thought of it as a sport. Yeah. But yeah, people a, think of it as a thrill. I think of it as more of a very peaceful. It's the same in the same category as sailing or something that's you know, where you're using the elements, you're using the wind for to take you places. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a wind pipeline. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Dimitri, how do people get a hold of you? Yeah, you can contact all the information is on datajoin.com and our open source resources are on datajoin.org. We are on Twitter. Datajoin Neuro is the handle. Yeah, these are some ways. By the way, I love that you have it on open source. I'm, I love that you did that. That's right. Everything is open source. Everything that touches the data is open source. That's good. That's awesome. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun.
Thank you, Carla. Yes. That's a wrap, everyone. If you learned something today, tell someone about this podcast and tell people to go disrupt their markets with a tidbit from this show. Thank you for listening to the Disruption Interruption podcast, where we transform lives, change consumer behavior, alter economics and science, and never accept the status quo. Ciao for now. Because we live in a highly litigious society, with America being one of the top litigious countries in the world, here's our legal disclaimer. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional public relations or legal advice. Do not disregard seeking professional legal, healthcare, or financial advice, or delay seeking professional PR or legal advice because of something you have heard here. Contact an attorney to obtain advice on any particular legal situation or problem. Use of this podcast or our website or any of its social media or email links do not create an agency-client relationship between Joto PR and the user.